What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I asked us to take a spirit animal <laughs> into our minds, which was a cockroach. And I said, you know, cockroaches can withstand even nuclear attacks. We need to be really scrappy again, not think about the millions of dollars of capital we may have raised or any of these things. It's about ensuring we can be there for our customers and for each other. And so what are the things that we can cut so we can get back to serving our customers? And then the next piece was, how do we really, again, adapt? And so we rebuilt our entire um, payments infrastructure, our credit models, um, all within two weeks. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio chapkin Today's episode... Take the first risk. My guest today is the founder and chief executive of one of the world's best-loved finance apps. Well, at least it's been rated at five stars by more than a million people. And it's been used by more than six million people total across four countries on three continents. And what's crazy, there's a good chance you've never heard of its founder. She's not someone who loves to be in the limelight, though she runs a company of more than 500 employees around the globe. Her name is Shivani Saroya, and her vision for her company was to build a financial services firm that makes small business lending totally accessible in places where it has been unstable or unavailable in the past. And I mean, an individual in India or Mexico or Kenya just downloads an app requests a loan that's the equivalent of $10 to $500, answers some questions about their life, their history as a merchant or in their business, and they are analyzed by an algorithm before being approved almost immediately. The app and the business is called Tala. And before Shivani launched it in 2011, before she'd funded millions of small business owners with the capital they needed to take off or grow, she was a kid with a can-do attitude, who spent years and years subsequently learning the exact problem she'd set out to solve with Tala. I wasn't a lemonade stand kind of kid, but I was a start many things kind of kid. (laughs) So as an example, I started a magazine as a kid and got a lot of other kids involved in it. And the thing I think that I remember the most about my childhood and this idea of like constantly starting things I would just do them without telling anyone. And so my parents would always end up going to parent-teacher conferences and then find out about all these secret little ventures that I had going. (laughs) And I think maybe that's a little bit of, you know, what I think brought me to starting Tala eventually is is this idea of, of just like problems or things I wanted to do without it being like, I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. Yeah, so you when you'd see a problem, you would just go at it or or start a new project without thinking like this needs to change in the world, you know, without asking permission first. Yeah, exactly. Asking for permission or even kind of thinking I couldn't do it. And so in that sense, you know, whether it was the magazine or whether it was starting an organization um, in high school within our class um, or eventually like 
really getting paid to fix people's resumes and CVs that were much older than me. I just kept on kind of seeing holes in the market um, or in systems and saying, hey, well, I, like, I'm just going to go do this. Um, and it was truly just fun. Um, and it just never felt like work to me. What did your actual path look like during school? Did you have kind of a prescribed path that you were trying to follow, uh, a direction that you thought you would go? I, I'm laughing a little bit at the question because I didn't have a prescribed path, but my parents definitely had one for me and kept trying to channel me into that path. <laughs> so um, my mom is a doctor. My dad worked in um, technology and investment banking. And in that sense, it was you can be a doctor or you can go down this path of financial services or investment banking. And I really didn't know where I wanted to be. I knew that I wanted to do something, I would say impactful, um, something that was bigger than me, but I didn't know what that meant. And I really did feel like I was searching for the thing that was really going to move me, that was really going to, just like these other problems had taken hold of me to just compel me to start something, I felt like I was looking for that path. After high school, I went to Wesleyan for college and you know, studied economics and government, tried to expose myself to multiple problems, also was pre-med, <laughs> um, also did investment banking interns. Leaving all the doors open. Really, truly. And, and I think that's the thing that, you know, when I think about my experience, I really just took that kind of abundance mindset towards life thinking, well, I'll just leave everything open. I'll just keep doing all the things. And eventually there's going to be something that unfolds that takes me in this one direction. And that that's really honestly like after college even, you know, I had multiple um, experiences that kind of eventually led me to Tala, but I didn't pick one path. Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to hear more about your actual journey as it unfolded. What did become the origin story of Tala? What were the kind of first seedlings of it? So right after college, I went right into investment banking because that was the opportunity that was at hand, went into equity research and realized, you know, after about two years, didn't want to be sitting behind a desk, didn't want to just look at financial models on a screen, but really wanted to understand the application of economic systems in our real world. So I ended up leaving that and working in microfinance and moved back to India and realized, again, this was really cool to me, realizing that, you know, microcredit was really improving the day-to-day -day living or subsistence living of individuals. So moving them from shocks to somewhat more stability. But what I saw was that while we were offering some access to credit, we weren't really able to help these individuals get into the formal financial system. And so I saw, again, these gaps in the system. I also had the opportunity to work at two different organizations at once. One was a very small startup that was just starting their lending arm. And the other one was a more scaled institution. And so I was able to see the pros and cons of really scaling a mission-driven company. And I could also see that it can kind of get away from you when you get to scale. And so what are the the gaps, again, in culture or how you set up people systems um, or, you know, operations um, to ensure, again, that you don't get away from why you started it. I guess, long story short, I left with a lot of questions. How long were you there and how long had you been in India previously? Were you born there? So I was born in India, moved to the U.S., 
um, when I was little. And then, you know, my whole family actually is um, from India. So other than myself and my parents, everyone still lives in India. So you had a network there of people and culture. Yeah, great. So you worked for two different companies in India. Microfinance was kind of a a growing, at least, concept in in terms of how Westerners understand it. Everyone knew about Kiva and that system, but you you saw started to see some flaws in it um, that you were just starting to discuss. Exactly. So I did see some flaws. I saw the flaws that made it so that it wasn't going to be something that would move from individual impact to really, again, thinking of it as how do we really integrate these individuals into the formal financial system? So to me, I felt like the ultimate goal is actually that everyone is included and that everyone is seen as equitable. And I didn't feel like we were really moving the the needle on changing that perception. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and so when did you start to actually build Tala? When did you turn that into a formal concept or pitch? Or what was the first stage? Well, you're going to laugh because after that experience, like I said, I left with multiple questions and kind of trying to tell people, hey, I have all these questions. It feels like we should be doing more here. We should change what we're doing to, you know, again, solve for, again, the systems aspect of it. And everyone's like, well, no. We have millions of customers that have received microcredit. Clearly, we're having an impact. We don't need to change anything. We've got high repayment rates. Everything's really working. And I was like, well, no, I, I see problems here. And I felt like, okay, well, maybe they're not listening to me because maybe I don't have enough information or knowledge. So I went back to school and I studied uh, econometrics and data science. And then uh, I went After that experience, I went to go work at the UN Population Fund. And I said, okay, I've been in the private sector. I've done microfinance or kind of working within nonprofits, grassroots organizations. Now I've got my master's and studying again economic systems, the things that I saw were missing. So now I'm gonna go work at the UN Population Fund. And I worked with one of the lead economists for Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as West Africa. And what I really loved about that work or that opportunity was she was really looking at, could we understand the cost benefit of development programs? So we know millions of dollars or billions of dollars are really pouring into emerging markets and again, aid programs. But do we again know whether it's really improving the quality of life of individuals or are we really seeing them progress out of poverty? And so as an example, You know, we wanted to understand if someone receives that $300 loan, what actually happens? Where does the money actually go? Does it go towards home improvements? Does it go towards their kids' education? But the point is it's all in cash. And so it's a black box. And so I, over the next four and a half years, lived and worked across nine different countries and had the opportunity to essentially observe or interview the lives of 3,500 individuals across these markets. Wow. And that is really what brought me <laughs> to discovering this problem. And I mean, I just saw it over and over and over. And I saw that individuals were being left out of the financial system. These were business owners that were very capable. They had purchasing power. I was witnessing the flow of money. And what I could see is that 
I was seeing the flow of money. I was seeing the purchasing power, the mental decisions they were making around their money, but I didn't have hard data. And so in that sense, it then moved me to say, okay, what we really need to do is actually solve for data. We need credit scores. We need credit histories. Um, And then eventually that led me to really thinking about the solution that we created. Interesting. So was it that in in those initial interviews you found that people who needed a one-time loan or cash infusion needed actual follow-up to that? I mean, it kind of makes sense that any business that is growing or scaling or any business that might hit something like a pandemic or any kind of catastrophic event that could happen would need another infusion. Is that sort of what you you found? Um, And that tracking that and, and tracking individuals and their their small businesses is would be the key to real growth? Exactly. I saw that they needed, I would say, flexible access to capital. So sometimes it was around emergencies. Sometimes it was around working capital. Sometimes it was around consumption. And in addition to that, I saw that really what was missing was just, again, the whole suite of financial products. You know, if they were part of a microfinance organization or receiving aid, they were only getting one isolated experience. And again, just like you and I, we have multiple aspects of our financial life. We have, you know, and and we need ways to protect our money. We need ways to use our money and we need ways to grow our money. Where did you start with building the company? Um, It's a challenging kind of market to be in. I know you're across three different continents now in four different countries. One of the traditional barriers when building an international company is is simply kind of the communication of it, right? And the the gaining trust in a in a foreign market. Um, you had experience in India. How did you approach Africa there when when you had your kind of strongest foothold in working there? Did you start in Africa? I did, and the way it actually started was I started lending my own capital. So because I believed so, I think viscerally in the potential of this population. I unconsciously actually started lending to them. And this is kind of why I was saying that as a child, it's the same things that I think resonated with me back then was I saw a problem and I said, well, I have savings. And if I see the potential in these individuals, then I'm just going to lend them my own capital. And so I started using my own savings to do it. And luckily, a friend of mine came to visit me. At this point, you know, I had done the nine countries in Africa and now I was back in India I'm still working at the UN Population Fund. And he asked me a question. He said, Shivani, you're pretty crazy. Like, you're lending (laughs) individuals across all these markets. You're doing it on your own. There must be something that's telling you that they're credit worthy. And I was like, of course. And I I rattled off a few things. At this point, I I was lending to a woman named Seema in India. And I said, well, if you look at Seema, you know, she is unlike the other tile makers in this area because, you know, more people spend time in her store than others. She buys her inventory every third Thursday of the month. But essentially, I just kept on rattling off all these things about her daily life. And he's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. You're underwriting her using her daily life data. You understand her capacity. You understand her expenses. You understand all these things. And we just may not see that. But it was kind of amazing because he really voiced what I was doing internally. And so then my aha was like, well, now I just need to find this exact same data source. And so then I started looking for it. And that's that next piece of realizing, well, everyone has mobile phones. 
And so maybe there's a way for me to capture this data using this device. And maybe that actually is a more effective mechanism to even reach them in a more cost-effective manner. It seems like so much data for any given small loan, though. How did you make that kind of work as a model? That is essentially then the next step of saying, okay, now I need good and bad data. Now I need to go build a very even rudimentary credit model. So, I mean, my background did help with this in that, you know, again, I came from the banking world. I had also seen how capital markets works and lending. I'd seen the supply chain. And then I also had a background in data science. And so the only missing piece for me was I didn't know how to code. And so I came back to the U.S., full circle, went back into investment banking because I was kind of jaded. (laughs) (laughs) And um, while I worked full time, I learned how to code and built our prototype. Wow. I really expected you would just hire someone to do it. Take that venture or take that investment money. I didn't have that much money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Incredible. When did you start to build a a real team um, and, and get your own investment as well? Certainly, fintech has been very a very hot investment kind of market for the last many years. But microfinance is, a, is I imagine, a tougher sell. Very much so. Uh, started in 2013, so we raised our seed round in 2013, and we had a pretty big, uh, I would say, kind of challenge in that very um, initial start. So I would say that for me, raising capital wasn't the the largest challenge. It was really the next steps of thinking about how do we move faster once we had that capital. When we come back, I'll talk with Shivani about the time she had to ask her staff to act like a very tough creature, a cockroach. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We had some capital, right? We'd raised a seed round, um, but we were actually having banks lend on our behalf. And so we were passing on these credit scores to institutions, and then they were making the loans. But if you think about it, there's a large sales process. You're acquiring the customer, you're training them on your product, you're gathering the data, you're then, you know, um, randomly auditing the data to ensure that it's not, again, self-reported information. We're then creating our credit models, then we're selling the scores to banks, and then we're having to understand, okay, were we right, were we wrong, um, and waiting for the loans to come due. And so uh, it felt like, okay, we've raised venture capital, but like, again, I was so frustrated because I'm like, hey, the customer is upset because they're having a bad experience with the bank. The bank wouldn't actually lend them at better rates wouldn't lend better, uh, more loans to them past that first one, even though they had the data. And so again, your, your customer you've acquired is now frustrated and they've built so much trust with you. So we're losing that trust with them. It's a long sales cycle. 
So it just brought me back to that experience that I had in the early days of microfinancing. I don't think I'm having the impact I want us to be having. And so how would we change this? And so what eventually happened was actually us lending our equity capital. Oh, interesting. Interesting. What, what year was this? 2014. So you decided to become the financial institution yourself, essentially. Exactly. What was that decision like? Was it a, you knew at the moment that you made the decision or was it a long, like, months of, of building up the, to the actual decision? I would say the insight happened in, I think, November of 2013. So a few things happened. One was the insight was we need to create a better user experience and really be able to continue to have that trust with our customers and vice versa. And, you know, um, it's a longer story, but a customer in Kenya really kind of helped me understand that. Um, And so we moved from a SMS or text messaging based product um, to an Android application. So that was another aspect of this. But then the next piece of should we lend, will our equity investors actually go along with this? You know, really putting out capital that may not come back to us. That took us I would say another few months, and we launched the new version of the app as the lender uh, in March of 2014. So not years, but it definitely took about four months from that those insights and that feeling to actually uh, pivoting and really going for it. Was there sort of a moment in time when you thought that it clicked? It was really fast. I think by uh, April of 2014, we knew we were on to something. You know, and I go back to this, it's not just that the model was working and that we were gathering the data we needed to then again move much faster um, and really prove out that alternative data could be used to create credit scores. Um, It was really the customer reactions. So not only did we have massive demand, but what customers were telling us about this experience we created and this access to capital was, you know, things like this is the Kenya we want. You know, we were hearing customers tell us that nobody had believed in them in this way before. And so for me, you know, when I think back to those 3,500 interviews, the thing that kept on kind of making me continue that work was what I saw was a lack of hope. I saw a lack of confidence. And so hearing really the 180 of that, right, that they are truly changed and it's coming from an app. It's not even coming from seeing me in person. Um, To me, it felt like that has been the thing that had been missing for so long. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, Well, fantastic. And what was the next challenge you faced uh, heading forward from 2014? So I think the next challenge was reminding ourselves that even though, you know, it was working in Kenya at this point, it's like we always knew that this was a global problem. I always knew that. And so making that decision to then launch the next country Um, And thinking about, you know, is it the right time? How do you do that? Where do you invest that capital? But if I think back to, you know, what made us actually turn to be a lender, it was deciding to take the first risk. It was deciding to say, okay, we're doing this and sure it's working, but are we really again moving the needle? And so the same thing applied to deciding whether or not to launch another country. So after Kenya, we launched the Philippines. Philippines, wow. <laughs> Completely different market. Different market, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I mean is it, that was that thing of saying, 
we didn't want to just launch another country in East Africa. Because again, when we think about taking that first risk, what are you doing? You're really needing to prove out that this can work globally. And so we wanted to pick a completely different continent. Uh, We wanted to pick different cultures. We wanted to think about a market that didn't have the infrastructure that Kenya had. And so it forced us, again, to go back to that those beginning days of saying, okay, what's missing? And what was missing in the Philippines was they had a very nascent mobile money system. And so we couldn't build on top of that. We had to really rethink our supply chain and our infrastructure and also rethink the kind of data models that we created in that market, how we think about fraud, how we think about identity verification. And it prepared us for the next set of markets we launched after that. Yeah, absolutely. So you had a a small team in the U.S., I'm guessing, and then teams in each country where you were launching. Tell me about the structure of the company today. So today we are now 540 people. Wow. We do have a U.S. office. I call it the U.S. office now because, you know, everyone's moved (laughs) out of L.A. Uh, But we do also have uh, local country teams and we have offices in each one of our markets So in Nairobi, Manila, Mexico City, as well as Bangalore. And it's pretty phenomenal in that, you know, we've always believed that we needed to be close to our customers. And so we really have strong leadership teams there, product managers, as well as user researchers across all our countries. That's fantastic. Um, and going forward, as you grew, uh, you continued to raise money. Um, you've you've raised more than uh, 380, I believe, million dollars. Correct me if I'm wrong. To build Tala, tell me about about that decision, like to pursue this sort of fintech Silicon Valley model, where you'd already taken on such a we're going to take the risk, we're going to have the growth, we're going to we're going to help you know, entrepreneurs all over the world grow organically, but to take on that that sort of fast growth model yourself in a different way. Um, how did you think about that and, and wrap your, I don't know, where was your head at going into those more significant rounds of funding? I think that I had always thought of it again as the problem that we're solving is affecting two and a half billion people around the world. The model of moving quickly, the pressure of scale, in some ways is actually aligned to the problem itself. Because again, I think of this as not one country, one segment of the population, but it's truly this idea that everyone needs access to capital. And not just that, everyone needs holistic financial products for all the different kind of moves in their life. And so in that sense, it gave me the more scalable capital and I think even the support around the table to go much bigger than I think I would have been able to do had I chosen to do a nonprofit or chosen to go um, in a different route with grant funding. And so in that sense, I think it was aligned. But the other aspect I think that we take really seriously at Tala, and maybe this comes from my private sector background, is that I also really want to create something that is generational and that actually will stand the test of time. And so Having a business model that is not dependent on grant funding or depending dependent on donations was really important to me. I wanted to create something that was sustainable and that, again, would prove that this customer base actually does have purchasing power and can pay for the product. 
Absolutely. Um, how do you kind of conceive of your mission these days and how is it kind of integrated into the business, the employees, um, what, what motivates folks to come to work every day? I would say that, you know, what we are building at Tala now is, and, and it continues to be the same from the early days, is this idea of enabling and accelerating financial agency. And so that's always been the vision that we've had. You know, it started with access to capital and liquidity, and now it's moved to saying, no, we can actually be their financial partner fully. And so we can help them with saving money. We can help them with, again, spending money. We can help them with growing money, um, investments, you know, working capital. And so it's continued to evolve in terms of, I would say, functionality. But the vision has always been the same. The crux of that or the underpinning of it is what we think of as radical trust. So we really believe that trust is a feedback loop. And so by lending to our customers, we are taking that first risk. We're truly putting the power in their hands. And if they find value in that, they will repay us and they will trust us again. We think of that not just as our customer value, but actually as our company value. And so I think, you know, you were talking about, you know, how did we scale across all these countries, have, you know, team members in different locations? How do we all stay together? And it's because of that founding value of Radical Trust. It's our North Star because we really believe that each one of us alone, (laughs) if we tried to do all the things, we would never be able to do it. And so we fundamentally have to trust each other at a very different level in order for us to, again, be lending to the millions of customers that we are today. And so I think that actually creates a lot of agency within the organization because you are truly trying to ensure that your teammates can be, again, agents of their work, their careers, you know, and within their own families and lives. Tell me the biggest way the pandemic affected Tala and what you were working on uh, when, when it hit in 2020. So the pandemic for us was... I would say a hard moment for Tala. And I and I say that because we had a very different seat at the table than I think most US tech organizations. We had a team that was in the US that we were also, you know, wanting to ensure um, you know, their jobs were safe, that their families and themselves were safe, right? So we immediately went remote, but we actually got a heads up that COVID was coming because of our market. And so the Philippines went into uh, quarantine actually two weeks prior to the U.S. Um, in, you know, putting it out there. And so we had already started to see that, you know, repayment rates were changing, customer, um, you know, sentiment was changing. And, you know, again, we had the heads up that they had already quarantined. And so we knew something was happening. And so we understood, again, at a micro level what was happening to the underserved customer. But if you think about it for us, we weren't just fighting COVID as a business in one country or fighting it in five because we had our four countries, but we also had the U.S. team. What I get even more motivated by is that it really showed that Tala was a, again, mission-driven global organization, but that we really cared about sustainability and profitability as well. And so we did decide to take a very hard decision in those early days to stop lending to our customers because we knew that customer capacity was changing and we needed to rethink how we were going to understand this customer during this hard time. 
And that was a really hard moment for our team that is very mission-driven, that is very empathetic, and saying, how can we not be there for our customers when they need us the most right now? Right? And, and as a CEO in that moment, it was a very hard decision for me because I'm also thinking of it as everything I've created. We have, you know, at that point, we had already lent to over, I think, 6 million customers. And so, you know, this was truly at scale. People were depending on us. Our team was also depending on me. And so I had to kind of keep on wrestling with that. And what I told our team was, we need to take different operating principles as we go into this. The first is that we do really need to ensure that, you know, again, we can survive. Because only then are we really going to get back to being able to thrive, as cheesy as that sounds. But I asked us to take a a spirit animal (laughs) into our minds, which was a cockroach. And I said, you know, cockroaches can withstand even nuclear attacks. And so we need to be really scrappy again and, you know, not think about the millions of dollars of capital we may have raised or any of these things. It's about ensuring we can be there for our customers and for each other. And so what are the things that we can cut so we can get back to serving our customers? And then the next piece was how do we really, again, adapt? And so we rebuilt our entire payments infrastructure, our credit models, all within two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And so people, I mean, our team worked around the clock because of the mission. But I would say the the thing that leads us to where we're going next is actually because of the pandemic, we realized that our customers needed more products from us. And so uh, as an example, in the Philippines, because of the severe lockdown, our customers couldn't even access the cash that they were receiving. And so we thought of it as, okay, now we need to actually create a digital account for them. We need to be more than just a lender. And so That's what happened for us is, again, changing from just lending to then being the true financial account. And then to your question of geographic expansion, we launched India in the middle of the pandemic. So hitting pause sort of allowed you to build more and and then grow. When when did you kind of hit the back on button? Uh, It was about a quarter later. Yeah, so not not too long um, with that off switch. That's fascinating, though. And and when you look at the future, are you going to continue to build more products, kind of go deep with any individual user, or is geographic expansion um, uh, in, in the future for 2023, 2024? No, right now we're completely focused on going deeper. And so across all of our countries, we are launching the full account experience, So providing our customers with the ability to have a virtual and physical debit card, um, the ability to save with Tala, and then adding even more to that in terms of rewards, benefits. Um, So again, continuing to grow with our customers. In the U.S., you are, you know, squarely amidst a bunch of very fast-growing fintech companies. What do you think that the fintech industry can learn from Tala and, and its customers around the world? I think it's about customer centricity. So I think that rather than peanut buttering across our markets, the same set of uh, experiences, what we've done is built ourselves to be, sure, uh, on one platform, but a very modular platform. And so the sequencing of our products and how we present those to our customers, we've taken really seriously. And so we stay very close to our customers. We really believe in this concept of listening and learning because 
again, that's what served us, you know, throughout the years is that we understand our markets and our customers are continually changing. And so we need to just be, again, uh, listening better than anyone. Do you have sort of a, a growth goal in mind um, for the more distant future? Are you, what would be your kind of dream exit? Would you IPO? Um, what's what's that uh, that goal for you? I describe the ultimate goal for us as controlling our own destiny. And I think in that sense, we are preparing ourselves for a path that could look like going public one day, but it could also look like, you know, partnering with another institution or staying private. But what I really want our team to always think about is if we are able to control our own destiny, we will never be forced to pick the direction. Um, We will be able to decide what direction makes the most sense for us, given, again, the resources that we want access to. Great. Fantastic. Shivani, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. After speaking with Shivani, what stuck with me is that she grew from a kid who didn't wait to ask what was possible before going out and doing it herself, to running her own company, which is willing at so many turns to take the first risk. Tala took the first risk when its product wasn't working, to becoming a lender itself. It took the risk of restarting when the pandemic put its whole model in danger. And it took the first risk when it decided to test its own utility by launching on a new continent rather than take an easy route to growth. It's not that Shivani is more decisive than other founders. In fact, she's someone who likes to leave many paths open to herself. But when she knows there's a benefit to her customers, the global unbanked, she's willing to take that first risk. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you can spare a minute, I'd love it if you could leave us a review. You can also let us know what you think about our shows by dropping me a note at whatiknowatinc.com or let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who, funny enough, also has had some bad experiences with banks, and I'll leave it at that, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. And before we go, here's a custom episode from Ink Content Studio and Principal. Enjoy. I'm John Gelberg, Executive Editor, Content Strategies at Ink. And this is a special segment from Inc. and Principal. In this conversation, we'll hear from an industry expert about how smaller businesses actually have advantages over bigger companies in dealing with customers and clients, and how company leaders can employ more of a human touch in today's tech-driven business landscape. Joining me is Kathy Kay. She is the Executive VP and Chief Information Officer at Principal. Thanks so much for being here, Kathy. Thanks for having me, John. I'm excited to be chatting with you today. Are you ready to dive in? I am ready. Okay. So tell me, in what ways are smaller businesses at an advantage in dealing with customers and clients? Yeah. So, you know, 
principal does a lot of work with SMBs. And one of the things that I find is they have quite a good pulse on their customers. They can be nimble. They understand how what they're doing, how they're serving their customers, whatever service or goods they might be providing, how it truly impacts them. Sometimes, as an example, in a larger company, not all employees might understand how they really impact customers, but in smaller businesses, rather, I mean, they know exactly the impact they're having on customers. They also have the advantage of getting feedback very easily. They can respond to their feedback very quickly. And then also be able to react and make changes to help them solve problems really effectively as well. Interesting. You know, but in today's technology-driven business landscape, is there still a place for the human touch? You know, this is a really interesting thing. So one of the things I can say, you know, when the, as the pandemic started, we saw a huge uptick in customers wanting to leverage digital solutions, right? They needed to have ways to interact digitally because you couldn't meet with people. But there are things that we are seeing and we see it across all lines of our business and our business owners are seeing this as well. Customers want the flexibility sometimes to talk to a human. And when we see it the most is when they feel they are making a really big decision, a really impactful decision. While all the digital data might be available to them, we find continually our customers and our SMB owners are seeing it too. They still might want to reach out to a human. And so what we've been saying is you have to make a seamless customer experience, regardless of the channel. If they're coming in in digitally, but they want to flip and talk to somebody, you have to make that simple for them to do. You know, there's some companies who are trying to do all digital. In fact, they make it super hard to ever get to customer service. You know, you have to go through five different IVR paths and things. And what we're seeing from our customers and listening to our small business owners is that's not what customers want. They want that choice, even though a lot of times they'll do it all digitally. But when they feel they are making a decision that is a big, impactful decision, they want to talk to somebody and we need to make that easy for them to do. That's a tremendous point. You know, and speaking of humanity here, what is a human interaction audit and how can smaller businesses use such audits to improve interactions with customers? You know, we do a lot with how do we get feedback from our customers? How do we respond to it? How do we listen to their problems? And how do we provide solutions that they can give us feedback on to make sure we're solving the right problem? And that's really what this is all about, right? understanding what are those moments in a customer journey where they might want to talk to somebody, where they might want that human interaction. And then how do you as a company, as a service provider, make it very easy for them to do when they want that choice? But you've got to give them the choice, be it a digital interaction, human interaction. And that's how we think about this human interaction audit. Well, that's interesting. But that's it for this special segment. This custom episode is produced by Inc. in partnership with Principal. I'm John Gilberg. Our producer is Avery Miles. And our editor is Nicholas Torres. Thank you all.
This podcast provides educational information only with the understanding that principal and its employees are not offering advice. Business owners should consult with their counsel or other advisors when making business decisions. Principal Life Insurance Company, Des Moines, Iowa, 2397091-082022.